Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Hey there, TCC. Uh, open up your Bibles if you have them to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We're continuing on our sermon series on wellness, where we are looking at certain common issues that people struggle with and wrestle with in their life as we walk toward Jesus. Uh, we started off by looking at worry and anxiety. And then last week, Pastor Ryan talked about sin, guilt, and shame, and the various barriers that we erect between us and God. And today we're going to be looking at pain, physical pain, physical ailments. Uh, That is something that we experience in this life. It is seemingly inevitable. We either have experienced physical suffering, or we will, or we know someone close to us who has, and most typically, all of the above. You know, every single week we put out our TCC prayer requests, and every single week there is a physical malady to pray over. You know, I looked at the email from last week and saw uh, several forms of cancer, severe nerve pain, infections, uh, kidney concerns and liver concerns, and even broken bones. And that's just one week. You know, going back further, we've seen all manner of incurable illness and debilitating diseases, deafness, blindness, infertility, paralysis, dementia, and more and more cancer. It's not hard to find these things. We see it all around us. There are plenty of people, even Christian people, who are not physically well. We see it every week. And yet every week we gather together to sing the praises of a God that we're told can heal. In fact, we're going to see several instances of supernatural, miraculous healing in the Bible today, uh, starting with this one, 2 Kings. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given great victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. 
Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. That's quite a story. It's exciting. You know, I I don't think that there is anything more exciting to a believer than to see or experience a miracle. And if you were to catalog the miracles, most of them would center on healing. And that is why we give God the title of the great physician. But the truth is, these stories of miraculous healing are so captivating to us because we rarely see it, if ever. Now, some of you may push back and say, wait, wait a minute. I I see God's healing hand everywhere. We pray for successful surgeries. We pray for successful treatments. We pray for successful recoveries. And we see that all the time. And I agree with that. You know, God is at work. God uses doctors. God uses medicine. God is at work in the natural world, providentially bringing about his desires. In fact, the ability of modern medicine to heal rests solely in the power of something that no human is responsible for, and that's life. God made life, and without that, the treatment won't matter. It doesn't matter how well you suture or how well you set a broken bone on a corpse. It will not mend. The ability of our physicians to heal is only due to a power that is derived from no man. But there is a distinction between God's providential work and his miraculous work. The Bible depicts both, but it doesn't conflate them. A miracle is not simply any act of God. Jesus was fully God, and so all of his actions were divine. But clearly there is a difference between Jesus walking to Jerusalem and Jesus walking on water. And the Bible talks about those things differently. God works in all cases, but the conquest of nations through Joshua is distinct from the tumbling of the walls in Jericho. The saving of God's people in Esther is different than the saving of Daniel in the lion's den. And the growing of Jesus in wisdom and stature is different than the virgin birth. The Bible depicts both providential working and miraculous working, but it doesn't conflate them. But I think we tend to. We tend to. And I think the reason that we do is pretty simple. We know that there will be times when we'll be at the end of our rope, where the only thing that will suffice for our physical healing is a miracle. And in those moments, the last thing that you want to hear is that miracles are uncommon. But definitionally, miracles are not the common or natural state of the world. They do not operate like the natural order of the world, and they do not follow the common natural laws of the world. Miracles run contrary to what is common and ordinary. Miracles run contrary to our understanding and expectation of the natural law. That's the entire reason that we're able to identify them. That's the entire reason that we recognize them as miracles, because that's not the way things usually work. Because that's not the way things naturally operate. Because that's not common. It is uncommon. You know, lots of people made pilgrimage to the Jordan for healing. Jacinthus the Presbyter in the late 11th century writes this, On the Feast of the Epiphany, cripples and sick people come and, using the rope to study themselves, go down to dip themselves in the water. Women who are barren also come here. Right? They too dip themselves in the Jordan River in faith to be healed. Do you think they were healed? Do you think they got their miracle? I kind of doubt it. Or or how about this? uh, Felix uh, Faber in 1483 described how knights would jump into the Jordan fully clothed because they believed that their clothes would be impenetrable to enemy weapons. You think that worked? 
You know, Felix also says that others, uh, they dipped bells in the river because they believed that ringing them would stave off lightning and thunder. Oh, God does perform miracles. And God can miraculously heal our bodies and physical afflictions. We see that in our text. And I firmly believe that Naaman dipped himself seven times in the Jordan and was miraculously healed. But it's not about the water. You know, Naaman even says that, right? He says, this is not an impressive body of water. There are better rivers. It's not about the water. Christianity is not mysticism. It's not superstition. You know, you see very different methods for miracles in the Bible. Uh, Sometimes Jesus would use things like water. Jesus does this in John. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Other times, Jesus just lays hands on people. Here's Jesus healing some leprosy. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And other times, Jesus just speaks and people are healed. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. See, part of the reason I think these miracles happen in such wildly different fashions is because God wants to make it clear to us that it's not about the means. It's not about the water. We see all of these sick people in need of healing diving into this water at Bethesda because they hope that it'll heal them when what they need is Jesus. It is God who performs miracles. It is God who brings healing. It is a person, not a thing. And frankly, that's kind of a problem for us because you see a person has a will of their own and objects don't. If I were desperately in need of healing, I could probably get my hands on some water from the Jordan River. I could do that. But I can't control God. And we really, really want to, especially when we need healing. But there is no special means. There is no mystical method. There is only the sovereign will of God. There were a lot of people at that pool at Bethesda that wanted healing, but only one of them received it. It's a question of God's will. Now, there are many who think that we can coerce God, that we can you know, force his hand to do our bidding. They don't necessarily put it in those terms, but that's essentially what it is. And that's what Naaman was basically expecting, right? Verse 11, But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. You know, I thought he put on a show. He'd wave his hand and implore God and entice his God to act. And people think, yeah, that's what we need to do. See, you're not seeing miracles. 
you're not seeing healing because you're not doing the right things. You're not saying the right things or you're not believing the right things. You're not unlocking the power from within. If you did that, well, then God would do what you want. See, you just don't have enough faith. Now, there is something to faith that's not fabricated from nothing, right? Jesus says this in Mark. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. We do need faith for healing. And we'll get to what that means more in a moment. But look at Naaman. This is not an example of deep faith. No, he thinks this is nonsense. He wants to leave. And he has to be convinced by his servant, right? Verse 13, Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? He needs to be convinced just to give it a shot. That's not much faith. Naaman's healing isn't tied to a great deed or great action or great faith. But we also think in those terms. Right where I need to be mighty indeed, mighty in action, and then God will display his power. I need to be mighty in faith, and then that will compel God to display his power. That's how we often think. But I want us to see something here. Naaman's healing doesn't start when he goes into the Jordan. No, his healing begins way back. When God, through his providence, raises him up in the sight of the king of Aram. Did you catch that? Verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Through him the Lord worked. God was at work. God was orchestrating. He was using Naaman. He was using Aram. Before Naaman knew the name of the Lord, before he exercised any faith in him whatsoever, God was at work to bring about his healing. God raises him up. He puts an Israelite girl in his household to talk to his wife, to tell him about the God of Israel and his prophet Elijah. God was orchestrating. God was at work to heal long before Naaman did anything. Elisha doesn't need to come out and put on a big old show and say the right things and do the right things or entice God with his spiritual fervor because God was going to do what he was going to do. He planned it long ago. It's about his will, not ours. And trusting in God to do what you want is not deep faith. Trusting in God when he doesn't do what you want is deep faith. But the question is why? Why does God miraculously heal Naaman and not us? Why week after week do we see in our emails examples of physical pain and suffering? Why doesn't God do something about that? We know that he can. We know that he loves us. So why doesn't he do something about our physical suffering? My brother is a surgeon, and one of the joys of that is that he'll sometimes share some of the gruesome photos of his work. Uh, This last time, we got to see some photos of a foot that really needed to be amputated. So my brother got to make one of those dramatic speeches, you know, you want to live, you got to lose your foot. See, even our human physicians recognize that some things are more vital than others. Some things are more important than others. That's the entire notion behind triage. Well, we know that, and so too does the great physician. He knows that there are some things that are more important than others. Jesus says this, And if your foot 
causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. Now that is hyperbole, but it's hyperbole for a point. There is something crucial at stake here, even more crucial than our own bodies. Our bodies are temporal, and there is something eternal. Our bodies are perishable, and there is something imperishable. It says in 1 Corinthians, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. God, as the great physician, is at work to remake us into a new creation. That is more vital. That is more important. And if we are in Christ, then that is our future. That is the faith that matters. It is the faith in Christ that brings healing. Our bodies will be healed. Our bodies will be redeemed. Our bodies will be raised. For the believer, every prayer for healing will come to pass one way or another. But too often we fix our eyes on what is seen and not what is unseen, on what is temporal and not eternal, on what is perishing and not what is imperishable. We have not thoroughly learned triage. But wait a minute. Does triage even make sense when it comes to God? I mean, isn't the point of triage that you don't have enough hands to tend to all the wounds and so you have to rank them by need and address the most pressing needs first? Our eternal selves, our imperishable bodies are of greater importance, but can't an omnipotent God do it all? Uh, Can't he transform me and remake me into a new creation while simultaneously healing my physical ailments? 38 years. That's how long it said the man by the pool of Bethesda lived as a cripple. 38 years before the miracle of Jesus. I'm 38. So that that man endured pain and suffering for my entire life. Was that necessary? I mean, I'm glad that a miracle is in store. I'm glad that God is transforming me into a new creation, but does it have to take so long or be so painful? I think the answer is yes. The, The Bible declares in 2 Corinthians All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far aways them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. If we're wondering why God can't simultaneously remake our souls and heal the painful suffering of our bodies, it's because God is using the pain and suffering of our bodies to remake our souls. That is his instrument. You know, oftentimes people who go into surgery look better going in than they do coming out. And if you didn't know any better, if you didn't know the reason for the surgery, you would probably judge it as unnecessary and even barbarically harmful. But the knowledgeable physician understands that sometimes a painful recovery is a necessary step for a healthy life. And it may turn out that we are groaning over the first incision that God made to save or better our lives. The Apostle Paul describes some of his own suffering. He says this, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know, I wish this wasn't the case. I wish that we could be transformed by our skills or our strength, but that's not the way. It never has been. To be healed, you must submit. You must go under the surgeon's knife. You must be rendered weak to be made strong. And if our pain is to serve any purpose, it must remain painful. You know, these stories of miraculous healings like Naaman are very exciting to us. And they give us hope. But if we want true wellness, if we want lasting healing, then we can't look to Naaman. We have to look to another, to someone else who also went down into the Jordan River. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. It's pretty clear from that passage that the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. But Jesus was perfect. Jesus had no need of repentance. And yet he submits himself to be counted among the sinners, to be counted among the unclean, because that's what he came to do, to become one of us, to take on our sin, to take on our infirmity, as it says of him in Isaiah By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He was numbered 
He was counted among transgressors. His life was an offering for sin that brings our healing. If we die with Christ, we rise with him. This is the effect, 1 Corinthians. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have. That is why we praise him as the great physician, because when we needed healing, Jesus got into the water with us. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.